cosmology or ideology, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it is our interconnection, rather than those human-made, man and woman-made wedge issues that continue to separate us. Uh, I think uh, Trista might be on the line with me. I just want to say hello for a brief minute. Trista, is that you? That this is me. Hi, Karen. Nice to hear your voice. Hey, Trista. Thank you. Thank you so much uh, for uh, helping me put together this wonderful show tonight. I just wanted to make sure that was uh, that was you there waiting on the switchboard. Uh, I just have a couple more housekeeping tidbits to take care of, and uh, then we'll begin our chat. Is that okay? Oh, yeah. Great. Thanks, Karen. Okay. So um, before we start our chat, I need to make sure listeners uh, are aware of a few things coming up real soon, some of which you need to act upon right away. First, uh, the Nashville Goddess Conference in mid-July. They're having a great special right now uh, for this three-day conference. Instead of it costing $333 uh, per person for three full days, not just an all-day Saturday and a half-day Friday and Sunday, three full days of conferences and workshops and rituals, uh, you can come with a friend. And for the both of you, I believe it only costs $500. That's a real deal, two Fifty per person instead of three thirty-three, um, it, but that's not going to last too much longer. That's an early bird price uh, because she, the organizer, wants to make sure she meets her minimum. Uh, you can go to Diva of Light Network uh, or email me for more information or check out my Facebook page for links. Uh, to the Nashville Goddess Conference, and uh, don't miss it. And yes, I, uh, I'm happy to say I'm one of the presenters uh, giving several talks there over the three days. Uh, also, we have the Joseph Campbell Roundtable coming up at the incredible Goddess Temple of Orange County in Irvine on May 23rd from 7 to 9 p.m. I'm the co-host of these uh, roundtables in Venice and Irvine, and I invite you to come free on Saturday, May 23rd, as Gianna Ciccelli discusses the sociology of religion versus magic and witchcraft. I think that's going to be quite an interesting conversation. And just a shout-out and say thanks uh, for the people who came to the Venice Library uh, for uh, that roundtable on Saturday. We had an incredible time, and uh, Sabina Magliotti, was the speaker, and it really turned out to be quite a discussion. We, uh, I, the topic was animals and the spiritual imagination. And I interviewed Sabina, so you can actually hear our uh, interview uh, from last week if uh, you weren't there last week. You, you won't miss it. So that's, uh, that's, that's my point. You know, what I'm trying to do with the roundtables is um, uh, interview the folks for you know, those who aren't within driving distance of Southern California. That way you get the benefit of what uh, those attending uh, also get, uh, you know, get to hear and learn and share. And uh, finally, uh, then there's uh, the Goddess Spirit Rising Conference uh, in Simi Valley, California, coming up in middle of September. Now, Simi Valley is just north of L.A., about 45 minutes. Um, there's uh, time still for more on that, but uh, they have a special price right now, too, uh, if you sign up uh, in early May. And they are going to have presenters uh, from all over the globe uh, coming into town to do ritual. 
teach classes and do workshops. This is for women and men. Yes, I am a presenter for several things there, too, and I think it's going to be another extraordinary event. And neither of these goddess conferences are your camping-type conferences. They're uncomfortable accommodations for those of us who can't sleep on the ground anymore with our aching bones. Uh, You can find out more on that one also on my Facebook page or their own Facebook page called Goddess Spirit Rising. I think you can probably also Google Goddess Spirit Rising uh, or you can always email me for more information. Okay, with all of that out of the way, let's uh, turn our attention to tonight's show. Uh, And I want to welcome again my co-host for the evening. Hi, Trista. Hi, Karen. Well, I am so excited about uh, chatting with you tonight and uh, uh, also with uh, Deanna and Monette and um, Shinaz. Uh, But, you know, let's start with you, Trista, because you are the one that uh, got this ball rolling, so to speak, uh, for this brand-new anthology that uh, everyone's talking about and enjoying, uh, titled Whatever Works, Feminists of Faith, Speak. What um, you know? What was the you know the the catalyst there? Um, where did you get your inspiration to do this anthology? Well, I had the idea to start anthologies. Um, I don't know, maybe about a year ago. There were just things that I wanted to explore, and this is the first one that I um, was particularly interested in as someone who has a Muslim background. Um, because I feel like I'm always kind of hitting a wall, particularly with within feminism and being a Muslim feminist, but also with the goddess feminism, just this idea that we can just completely disregard our socialization, our religions of origin, which are often cultural. And um, I just wanted to kind of get a broad perspective for many different women and share their experiences. And um, I'm just really thrilled um, with the end result. And my mom actually joined me in editing this, so it was a fun project for us to do together. Oh, that's lovely. And, and, you know, and I like the title, too, uh, Feminists of Faith Speak, because, you know, I don't know about you, but um, don't you think sometimes out there people have, for some reason, you know, have the idea that feminists are secular and maybe they don't really have much of a spirituality? Yeah, and I think there's a silencing. I mean, that's why I kind of wanted to to use speak in the title because I have often felt silenced within feminism um, as a person whose faith kind of has taken a lot of turns. But it's it's kind of consistent that a lot of times when you get into a group on Facebook or something and you bring up especially Islamic feminism, that you kind of get this, well, you can't really be, you know, it's an oxymoron, you can't really be this. And... I think it's it's really it's upsetting and concerning to me that we're shutting out so many women on the you know from the get go basically saying you know if you're this if you happen to be born into this religion then you can't be a feminist and there's so many amazing women of faith that have done just tremendous things for women globally that I think that that's really a shame to just start with exclusion like that. Well, you know, it's our own ignorance. I mean, don't you think? I mean, let's just be honest, and we're not picking on anybody, but, you know, let's just, you know, be up front. Because I think when 
um, you know, I, I, I'm just thinking about the people that I talk to and maybe some of, you know, my, my early misconceptions as well. You know, I, I think when you uh, think about Islam, you automatically get this idea of women in burqas. And I, you know, even though that's not the case, you know, far from it, uh, because, you know, here in the United States, a lot of us never meet or know that we're meeting, um, you know, maybe someone who practices Islam. And, you know, and, and couple that with the fact that, you know, we have this idea of, you know, that this burqa picture and, you know, uh, in our mind. And it, it maybe it seems odd uh, to some that there actually are Islamic feminists. Well, the thing that I think people need to recognize is that Islam is not a monolith. It's not like you have one type of Muslim. There's over a billion Muslims in the world, and it's practiced in so many different ways. Um, and feminism is really necessary within Islam. Um, Amina Wudud actually wrote the preface to this, and she, I mean, she's just a phenomenal woman who has just done mind-blowing things. So I, I, I would love to just see, personally, feminism widened, where it's inclusive of all women in all faith traditions, and not, I feel like a lot of times, especially in the Facebook groups, we're kind of nitpicking on each other and, and excluding and saying, you know, if you do this or you do that, then you're not a real feminist or whatever. Uh, I don't think that that's helpful. No, no, I, and there's a lot of that, you know. I mean, um, I've talked about it every now and again here on the show. I mean, Facebook can really be brutal, you know. Um, there's there's sort of this joke among, you know, some of my closest friends, but here I am sharing it publicly. You know, I call myself a social justice activist, but after getting beat up on Facebook, I, I decided sometimes I don't like people at all. <laughs> um, but, yeah, uh, yeah I, mean, I, I mean, I find the same thing. You know, I'll go on there, and here I am every day, day, day in and day out, day in and day out, I'm, you know, trying to advocate for women, and, you know, there's like this purity test, you know, or are you feminist enough, you know, and, and sometimes if you think men have something worthwhile to say, well, you don't pass, and I've gotten kicked off the lists, you know, because, you know, I said, you know, sometimes women aren't very nice, and sometimes men are, or maybe because I have transgender friends, I mean, it's like, it's taboo, you know, um, and, and it's a shame, really, because I think as women, uh, we really do need to be creating, you know, solidarity among us, you know, finding common ground, because we're all, I mean, I hate to use the word victims, but we all suffer from uh, patriarchal oppression, and if we wouldn't divide ourselves, uh, we would be so much more powerful. Yeah, um, Janice, I don't know if I, Janice Ian, I don't know how you say her name, I, um, the musician who actually has a great uh, autobiography too that I really enjoyed, but she had a great post the other day, and I was, I was going to see if I could find it, I don't think I can, but it was something to the extent, it was very simple, just like a chalkboard that said something to the extent of, we don't have to agree on anything to be kind to each other. Very and, true. <laughs> yeah, it was. I I don't know if I'll find it, but it was so. It was, you know, just such a great reminder for feminism and everything else. Um, there are so many different opinions about everything, and I think we do need to kind of hone in on what we do agree on and figure out solutions. Because if we keep arguing over what I would consider a lot of times small things, we're never going to liberate ourselves. 
Well, that's true. You know, when the Dalai Lama, you know, is kind of sitting back waiting for uh, Western women to save the world, <laughs> it's kind of, you know, it, when we have these uh, petty sort of conflicts, you know, on Facebook or, uh, you know, in our groups, you know, when we um, or, or patriarchal ourselves and create these uh, these divisions, you know, create the separateness, then we're just sort of playing into patriarchy's hands rather than getting together, you know, and doing the business of, uh, you know, making the world a better place for the most of us. Um, you know, how can we be so silly, you know, is, is what uh, I scratch my head sometimes and, uh, you know, and wonder, you know, let's, uh, let's get with it, women. <laughs> Well, you know, as, yeah. you know, speaking about is, Islamic uh, feminists, uh, I'm trying to remember her name, um, but uh, I, I heard her uh, speaking to Amy Goodwin and uh, Goodman once on Free Speech TV, and uh, you know, I've quoted her often. You know, I believe she says something along the lines of, um, you know, if if God says it, you know, we can justify anything, you know, and yeah. uh, I, I think she was probably one of the first. Um, Muslim feminists that really sort of caught my eye. Uh, are there any others that we should be watching out there? Any other names that um, you know people out there on women on the front lines that are really trying to make a difference? Well, there's so many. There's Keisha Ali um, Shanaz, who's on the show, has a wonderful blog. Um, there, I mean, there are several contributors in this anthology that are just tremendous. Um, there's the Muslim feminist page on Facebook, which is, is wonderful. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, in the back of the book, actually, um, we put together, we have a working group on Facebook of contributors and put together a really great selection of um, suggested reading. And there's a lot on Islamic feminism in here for people who, who want to learn more about it, um, which I think is really important. You know, we've... Uh, been doing some marketing on Facebook with the book, and the memes that seem to get a lot of discussion, and a lot of times not nice discussion, are the Muslim feminist ones. And I've been feeling a lot of times like people aren't even reading <laughs> what the yeah. passage says. It's like they just get to the Muslim feminist, and it's like, yeah. stop. You can't be a Muslim feminist in the discussion. And so we've had some interesting debates on there. Um, but I think, you know, even though sometimes I do, I don't want to say take it personally, but it is, it does get to be upsetting because I do think that it plays into Islamophobia and that our foreign policy, I mean, I think there's a real reason why people feel this way about Muslims. Uh, first of all, it's like the media descriptions of Muslims are so, you know, terrorist or submissive, abused wife. Um, I think that we have we have to look at why we feel the way we do because I really feel strongly that there is a reason that we are made to think these things. And I feel like people just need to get to know Muslims because they, you know, sometimes people don't even know a Muslim and then they're making, you know, and they haven't read the Quran and they're making all these statements that are, are ignorant. And, you know, Muslims are wonderful people. Every well, group and, and has, we, you know, certain people that are not great. Um, but uh, by and large, I mean, I've I've had a wonderful experience in the Muslim community. 
Well, and I think pagans should really be able to uh, relate to that, you know, and and I and that was one of the things I said a long time ago when there was that big controversy about whether the mosque should be built around the 9-11 site, you know, uh-huh. and, you know, and I was saying, you know, pagans, I mean, we would be the first, uh, I think, you know, probably after the Muslims, pagans would be the first ones that, uh, you know, the Christians and, you know, you know, the, the sort of the intolerant, you know, I don't want to say all Christians are intolerant, that's not what I meant, but, you know, mm-hmm. the, the people get this idea that this is a Christian country and the rest of us don't have a place, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but this, this, I, you know, pagan, I, I, I would say always on Facebook, you know, we will be the next ones in the crosshairs. Um, if well, we and Islam has pagan roots, so I mean, I think we're all brothers and sisters, is my I, I will, take on that. Of course, of course we are, and and you know, and we don't want to give the impression that the the anthology is just um, uh, Islamic feminists either. Uh, that's just a part of uh, some of the voices. Uh, you just had uh, a wonderful review by Kate Bruner on, uh, and she posted it on feminism and religion. Um, I guess um, I see uh, Monette is on the switchboard, but before we get to her, okay. how would you sort of encapsulate? The many different voices that are uh, in the uh, in the anthology, Trista. Where do all of the uh, since we're only going to be talking to three women tonight? Um, what are all the, what are the you know the general backgrounds? We have uh, of, a quite diverse group. I'm looking at the back. We have atheists. We have Catholics, former Catholics, um, a lot of Bedesians, um, uh, Muslim, Jewish, Christian, um, Hindu. Let's see, Buddhist. Um, so yeah, I mean, we've, we have a wide selection, and then we have a lot of people that are kind of a mix of different things, and um, people that just can't believe at all in anything anymore. Um, I, to me, atheism is also a faith. I think that atheists also kind of get pigeonholed into this one thing, and I think that it's really important if you're going to have a conversation about faith that atheists are also included in that because... Well, they're sort of the religion of science. <laughs> you well, know, well and, and they're all coming. I mean, no one, pretty much everyone, I mean, it's probably going to be a little bit different, but most people that are atheists still came from a, a, a faith of origin. And, you know, that's one of the like, things I really like about Carol Christ's work is talking about how even if we get away from religion, we are still really impacted by it because it socializes us yeah. and the images. And, you know, it's that's to me, like for women especially, why it's so important to have this female image of the divine because um, we, to me, I don't, I don't see how we can really fully come into our own power without that. I agree. And, you know, that's a perfect segue for our first uh, our first conversation. Um, so, Trista, I'm going to leave your mic hot so you okay. can jump in uh, at any time and, uh, you know, and, and chat with our guests as well. And uh, I want to introduce uh, the listeners to uh, our first interview, uh, Monette Chilson. She's the author of Sophia Rising, Awakening Your Sacred Wisdom Through Yoga, 
she's lived uh, her yoga. Uh, she, she's lived her yoga on and off uh, at the mat for 20 years. She writes and speaks about the melding of faith and yoga. She's written for Yoga Journal, Integral Yoga Magazine, Om Times, and Christian Yoga Magazine. Uh, her book was recently awarded an Illumination uh, Book Award gold medal, as well as the Hoffer Small Press and First Horizon Awards. Uh, and uh, you can explore her work at uh, sophiarisingyoga.com. So, Monette, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Hi, well, Monette. Hello, Trista. <laughs> nice to well, hear your it's, voice. It's yeah. wonderful, Monette, to have you here tonight, and uh, nice to meet you, uh, and 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 uh, you know, sort of a little bit more in person rather than just through your writing. I, I mean, Trista yeah. was just uh, saying the importance of. Um, finding the the sacred feminine and you know you write about how your formative faith uh you know in the beginning those uh, early days of spirituality or religion for you like so many of us the sacred feminine was excluded um can can you describe how you were able to recover the experience of the sacred feminine Yes, I would love to. Um I think like a lot of people I mean, my background is Christian and I still kind of joke that I'm a recovering Baptist. Um, so it was a pretty, it was a pretty repressive kind of um, spirituality that was transmitted, and um, I had to leave that I think for a while, like a lot of people do, and then come back and kind of recreate. And for me, I have found so much of my spirituality on my yoga mat. That was my place of recreating. So when I left, say after you know college-ish, um, probably until my early 30s, I that's when I got into yoga, and I wasn't doing it um, like so many things in life as a conscious choice of, oh, I'm going to go recreate my spirituality. But I was drawn to yoga, and I found um, my spirituality there, kind of much to my surprise. I don't think I ever pictured I'd walk into this very Eastern-looking, Eastern-sounding, you know, yoga studio. And this was kind of before yoga was hip. This was in the, you know, early 90s. It was pretty um, true, true yoga. And um, I just found a place there. I think the key was that in all the spiritual aspects of yoga, it is very experiential, and your experience or my experience on the mat is not being named by someone else. No one is standing at the front of the yoga class and necessarily saying he, him, and putting the patriarchal emphasis. I just was on my mat. It was feeling spiritual, and it was the first place I had been that I got to name my own experience. And I think out of that naming my own experience, that I began slowly to feel, wow, I can call God a she and I won't be struck by lightning. And, <laughs> you know, feel give myself permission. But I think I did have to step away from organized religion for quite a while to do that. So, uh, but what I'm curious about, Monette, was it that just how you actually felt doing yoga was, was somehow helped you connect the dots to a feminine face of God? Or was it 
like you said, it was, you know, kind of had an Eastern flavor. You know, was it like, were you like drawn to Kuan Yin or just trying to connect the dots there? Well, Karen, I wish I knew exactly. I would say for me it was so much not a head experience where I was going through and figuring it out, but it was truly that my my body and my heart and everything else was kind of leading the way. So there wasn't a lot of um, aha moments from a mind point of view. It just kind of um, was like being with God instead of thinking about God to me. Mm -hmm. And I don't think Mm -hmm. I even realized that at first. I mean, probably like a lot of people when I started doing yoga, I thought it was kind of cool. I wanted to try it. Oh, I'll, you know, it'll help me get in shape, whatever. Um, But it was more than that. And I don't really know, uh, I don't really know what it, I can't really describe uh, in an intellectual way what that was. But I could feel God there um, where I couldn't, um, in you know actual church settings anymore because of all the barriers and the fact that I knew in me that there was a sacred feminine, but I wasn't seeing that reflected in the places that were quote unquote the sacred spaces. So you know I began recreating that for myself. And so what, did did you um, go back to the Christian faith at all and incorporate a feminine face of God within it, or did you just decide, you know, Christianity and being a Baptist was not really going to be in your spiritual paradigm moving forward? Well, I did not go back to being a Baptist. <laughs> I will say that. Um, I don't think I will ever go back to that for me, but... Um, Christianity, what I ended up doing is differentiating for myself the difference between what Christianity, the religion, had become and what Christianity, as in what Jesus came to teach people, was. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was a huge difference. And there was a lot of reading and researching and realizing that while I believed in what Jesus was teaching, I did not believe in a lot of the things the church was teaching. So it was spirituality right. versus religion. Right. right. And there's I get that. also, yeah, there, there are so many. And I'm still, just maybe two days ago, this past weekend, I went to hear um, someone speak about Celtic spirituality, John Philip Newell, who's written extensively. And the Celtic understanding of Christianity resonates very strongly with me. It is more connected to the earth. It is more inclusive of the feminine. It is more all the things that speak to my heart. So when right. I look at Christianity, you know, out of the taking it out of the, you know, basically the imperial view is what we got, you know, from Rome. And that if you take Christianity out of that political kind of cultural context, that is how I was able to plug back in and reconnect. Well, you know, you probably heard in the news the last few days they've been talking about the new poll that came out. And, uh, you know, there's been a big drop in people who uh, want want to claim Christianity uh, as their religion. It probably, you sound a lot like me and my my own journey. Uh, That that didn't surprise me at all. uh, Mm. Did you have any thoughts on that? You know, I am woefully ignorant of the news, Karen. I avoid the news. But just hearing what you've said, 
Um, no, I'm not surprised. I've, I've blogged about that subject before, um, that sometimes I just don't want to pick up that label, that Christian label, especially yeah. when I'm around people that are wielding it as if it were a sword against everyone else. Yeah, um, yeah. And I really... Yeah, because there's yeah, a Jesus Christianity and then there's another kind, you know. And I agree. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and but I, I have a question. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Are you... So this is, this is a question, like, for me, because I grew up Christian, and I've tried at times to go back to church, even progressive churches, and I'm not... Even even when there is some amount of inclusive language, I don't feel like it goes far enough. Are you in a church where you feel like you are getting that sacred feminine in your church service, or is it something that you have to find outside of the church service? Well, I would like more for me. And there, it depends on the service. The, mm-hmm. the service I go to, I'm at a Methodist church, and it's a church that has several different services. And one thing that I, has definitely changed for me is I really am drawn to contemplative spirituality. And they do have a contemplative service. Mm-hmm. And it does have some feminine, inclusive language, but not enough. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I still do have to do a lot of it on my own. But um, I guess I don't get that little nagging feeling as much as I do in a traditional service that mm-hmm. it's not speaking to me. So, um, Monette, uh, just briefly, because our next um, our, our, our next guest is on the switchboard. Um, did you want to tell us anything about your, the essay that you have in the anthology or uh, who, uh, you know, who is the great she that you maybe identify with um, in particular these days? I would love to. Um, basically, my essay is just my story. Um, and it's a lot about what we've talked about tonight and how I made those connections. And for me, that touchstone, because I really wanted one within the Christian faith if I was going to operate in that realm. And I ended up being drawn to Sophia. And I love the idea of wisdom and that deep wisdom that's in all of us, not just um, all of us in one particular religion and all of us, period. Um, And Sophia was there. And that's what I thought was um, kind of astounding to me, that there could be this lovely face of the feminine divine within my religion that I had grown up in that I never really heard of. So I ended up, you know, calling my book Sophia Rising because that resonated so strongly with me. And they mention um, in the Bible, Sophia's in Proverbs, she's in Revelation, she's in the Wisdom of Solomon. And she's this kind of always been there, always will be there, wise, woman um and that that is my touchstone of the feminine divine that i feel like is from my spiritual tradition and is true to it but it also is true to me which i think you know is key when you're having a spiritual experience it has to resonate in that deep part within us Absolutely. Well, Monette, I would love to invite you uh, back on the show. I'd love to talk more about your book, uh, Sophia Rising, uh, Awakening Your Sacred uh, Wisdom. It's a wonderful book. That would be a great show. 
Thank you. Well, yeah, so let's do that. Um, okay. And, and either Trista or Monette, uh, before we have to say goodbye and move on to Deanna, uh, either of you ladies have anything you want to um, say to each other or to listeners about what we've been talking about? I'll, I want to thank Trista because she is an amazing collector of ideas and putter together of thoughts. And she's one of the biggest blessings um, to me of the people I've met since I put my book and my story out into the world. And I think she's doing so much good um, for interfaith dialogue and for the face of the feminine divine and getting that out to us all. Well, you won't get any arguments from me there. (laughs) (laughs) And I love getting to meet you, Karen, and learn about your show. And I look forward to connecting again as well. Sure. Um, email me after the show, and we'll, you know, we'll okay. we'll take the next step to get you on. Trista, any right. uh, any farewells or, le- or or final comments? Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us, Monette. You're you're a tremendous oh, blessing, and I love your work. And your essay is just a, a wonderful asset to this book. So thank you. All right. Good night. Good night. Good night, Monette. Have a great weekend. Bye bye. You. Bye. Okay, so uh, we see Deanna is uh, is on the switchboard, and let me just uh, uh, give a brief intro to uh, Deanna for listeners who might not remember her uh, from when she was on before. Uh, Deanna Lamb is an internationally established expert on menstrual wellness, author of Becoming Peers, Mentoring Girls into Womanhood, and A Diva's Guide to Getting Your Period. She's the founder of Red Moon School of Empowerment for Women and Girls and of Red Tents in Every Neighborhood Global Network, finally known as a womb visionary. I love that. Deanna has been transforming lives worldwide for over 25 years, teaching women and girls how to love themselves unconditionally. And you can visit her and learn more about all of her incredible work uh, at her website, which is her name, and I'll spell it for you. It's D-E-A-N-N-A-L-A-M.com, DeannaLam.com. So, Deanna, welcome back. Thank you, Karen. It is lovely to hear your voice again and to be back here with you with the Sacred Feminine. Oh, absolutely. And I know you've been busy, busy, busy out there in the world. I see you all over Facebook. You're always doing uh, so many things. Um, What did you want to talk about tonight? Well, I wanted to talk about the most hidden face or facet of the feminine, which is our cyclicity, our menstrual blood. It is so much part of our divinity as women, and it is so hidden. So much so that the word cyclicity, when I type it, the... um, um, the word spell check says it's, a, it's not a word. There is not a word cyclicity. <laughs> there is cycling and everything to do with bicycles, but cyclicity <laughs> is not a word apparently in the English language, and it's invisible and taboo in anywhere you look. So that's what I'd like to talk about. <laughs> okay, okay. So um, I so think tell us so about important. that. Go ahead, Trista. Well, I was just going to say, I, I think this is so critically important and... and um, you know, as I we started putting the book together, I noticed a theme with with all the faith traditions. It is this turning the sacredness of our menstrual cycle into a taboo, and so um, Diana wrote 
specifically about that. She actually has two essays in here, but I think right now we're going to talk about menstruation. And with that, I'll leave it to her because I love listening to her beautiful accent, and I think mm-hmm. that she knows more about it than just about anyone I can think of. So, so, so Deanna, we know it's taboo everywhere, but do we know when or how uh, our our sacred bloods became taboo? Well, I think it took a, a while, but um, it's, uh, the way that I see the process is going from a place of reverence to women's uh, ability to bring life, to create new life, and to bleed with the moon, which is part of the cycle of life, um, from reverence to awe to fear to disgust. So they, you know, and that took generations, but I think that the place that moved from awe to fear is very much connected to a place where women are so much in their shamanic power when they bleed, so connected to the divine, that men wanted to have a taste of that or to emulate that or to um, somehow be participating in that and, um, and started fearing that. Uh, that, that force, that power, and then the fear bred taboo. The fear bred disgust and and uh, shunning. So it's really interesting to see how the practice of women withdrawing from everyday life in order to be connected to the divine, in order to prophesize. Um, oracles for their tribes in moon huts and red tents and lodges, that that practice that was all over the, uh, the antiquity uh, in all indigenous cultures has not been able to be completely destroyed. So what happened is that the practice was kept, but the raison d'etre, the reason why, was not because anymore because they were connected to the divine and needing to delve inside, but because they were dirty and unclean and and taboo and you can't touch them because they will spoil the food or they will spoil your your dreams or so so they couldn't take away the practice they took away the positivity and turned it on its head i see well yeah because women we know women are still relegated to the menstrual hut but we think maybe like if i know probably so many of my listeners and maybe yourself uh, too deanna you saw the uh, the TV show, The Red Tent, um, and it, and you know, it, you really got the idea that it was a glorious time for women to enjoy that time together, and uh, something that we've really lost. And it goes from this, um, you know, maybe nourishing, uh, and joyful, and magical experience to um, to this to this taboo. Yes. Yes, it used to be a, a nourishment for our souls internally, for the company of women with each other, and also for our connection to the divine. It is in indigenous cultures the time of the blood is thought of as the time when the veil between the worlds is thinnest, when the veil thins and we are connected to, to the spirit world in a way that when we don't bleed, we're not as connected. And... That is something that we can reconnect with anywhere and everywhere, regardless of the fact that our culture is not revering it. You know, we can't right. wait for the culture to 
give us the space. We need to take the space inside. So let's talk a little bit about indigenous cultures, though. Are they doing a better job than, say, women in Western culture in embracing their menstruation, or are are they having struggles as well? You're asking currently in contemporary um, well, both before you know, uh, say then and now. So I think there is a huge difference between then and now. Then, across the board, I find in my research that in all indigenous cultures around the globe, there was reverence, there was honoring, there was a coming with an intention of being guided and led by the bleeding women who were in the moon lodges and moon huts, who were prophesizing uh, prophecies for their tribes. So. Uh, women uh, would sleep around the altar in the lodges uh, with their heads in a circle around the altar and with their bodies out like the spokes of the wheel. And they will usually dream together. And people would come from the tribe with questions from individual questions about directions in individual people's lives that they wanted guidance on, all the way to elders who would come with questions about what direction should the tribe take? Would we migrate now or later? Which direction? All the way to whether to wage war or not. And it was absolutely clear and understood that what the bleeding women will dream is what will come to pass, that people would follow individually and collectively the guidance from the prophecies of the bleeding women. It was, it was not questionable at all. It was, it was the oracle of the time. So in that respect, there was absolutely a better job in terms of the whole tribe being organized around allowing the women to take time off, to be able to go into this space, because women can't prophesize prophecies for their tribes while they're taking care of children and cooking and doing all of their daily chores. So the men and the older children would take care of business so that the women could be free to perform this service for the tribe and to renew themselves in the moon huts. So in, in times of old, I would say that there was quite balance and, and the job was well done by, by the whole culture that held that in reverence. Uh, in indigenous cultures today, I don't see that being the case. I see across the board, I travel in many cultures around the world, and <clears throat> I don't see very many differences between how much of a taboo women grow up with in the East and in the West and in industrialized cultures and in more um, earth-based cultures. The taboo is now prevalent across the board, and it's pretty heartbreaking to hear how women grew up as girls with so much misconception and fear and shame and embarrassment and lack of information and and taboo around our menstruation. So, um, Deanna, two questions for you. Um, You know, we have this, uh, uh, you know, one of the things that, you know, women can't agree on, at least I know in some of our communities, women that I know, about um, teaching men about uh, the blood mysteries. And, of course, I know, you know, men can't understand the blood mysteries like um, women understand the blood mysteries because they experience the blood mysteries. They embody the blood mysteries. But do you see a benefit in men having awareness 
about the blood mysteries. I mean, that they maybe can be taught to a certain extent so that they can maybe um, appreciate this, you know, this time in a in a woman's cycle and, you know, maybe help her, you know, con- a, a father could, you know, make it a wonderful experience for his daughters, maybe even sons could, um, yeah. you know, it wouldn't be all this teasing of their sisters. It wouldn't yeah. be something the yeah. girl would be ashamed of. It would be something in the family that... Um, uh, would be one could you know be turned into a sacred experience that could bring the whole family together, or am I just crazy in Pollyanna? Not at all. I totally agree with you. I would like to preface by saying that it's not either or. Either we teach men and women together, or we only teach women. It can be both. I think that there needs to continue to be spaces for women to sit in the company of other women from the time of first blood to through the years of their bleeding because there is a sacredness that needs to be shared among women which is only for women because they are sharing an experience viscerally in their body and in their psyche. That is not to say that men don't need to be educated. It's both and. I believe men absolutely need to be educated. I believe that the more they understand the sacredness of the blood mysteries, the more they will support the women in their lives, their partners, their daughters, their significant others, their their women in their community. They absolutely need to be educated because because what we don't understand, we often fear. And when right. we start understanding, we can make room, we can be part of, we can we can absolutely allow the man to be holding the outer container while we need to withdraw and do our inner work when we bleed. So absolutely, I don't think it's Pollyanna at all. I think it's crucial. And I would add, it needs to start with boys. Yes, yes. It needs to start before they're men. I I have a son and two stepsons, and it starts really from birth, you know, just making it a normal you know, yes. not uh, you know, because they get all the socialization from their friends early on, like oh, it's growth, it's this or that, you know. So I feel really strongly that it has to start when we are dealing with boys, not men. But I mean, I of agree. course, men too. But <laughs> I agree. But you know, it's always a chicken and an egg because if, yeah. if the the boy is educated and his dad is is still thinking of menstruation as taboo, then he would be in conflict with his dad and he would probably defer to dad. So I don't know what needs to be first. I think both need to happen because because really the dads and the sons need to understand together and not be at odds with each other but actually be on the same page. Mm-hmm. So, Deanna, um, this must I mean, you know, you've been doing this so long. Um, I'm wondering, you know, women today, um, I mean, so many of us don't have a good relationship with our sacred blood, our, our, our you know, our menses. You know, uh, Big Pharma tells us, oh, take this pill, make it go away. Um, how do you start to help a woman who has had nothing but maybe horrible cramps and maybe sort of a negative attitude about it, how do, how do you start to help her have a better relationship with her sacred blood? So where I start is gathering women together and starting to realize that we all have almost an identical experience and none of us is speaking about it. And part of the problem and even the physical symptoms are 
the, the taboos and the silence around it. So one thing that I often do with women in, in gatherings, in circles, is that we start by telling the story of our first blood. And for many women, this is the first time ever they tell this story. And for most of us, it's a story that's fraught with embarrassment or shame or, or really a, a time of our lives when the, the bud of our femininity was about to open and it was squelched and stomp, stomped on and, and stepped on. And that wound we all carry, whether consciously or unconsciously. So what happens when women start hearing each other's stories, they realize they're not alone, they're not the only one that's carrying that heavy weight of their time of adolescence. The the words that uh, most associate with, with the first blood experience with women around the world is aloneness, how alone they were with that. So when women start feeling together and realizing that despite the differences in the details of their stories, whether they've been in traditional cultures, in, in urban cultures, in religious, in atheist, in no matter what environment, women share those stories, and every woman in the room can relate to every single story, not in the details, but in the emotions that every woman shares. And that in itself is, is really starting a profound journey of healing. And yeah, then, and yeah. and I would imagine as these stories are shared and told, um, you know, maybe something just starts to automatically shift, uh, yes. you know, shift in the psyche, and uh, yes. um, you know, maybe it's it's you know, you have a different different context, or you know, maybe yes. it, just a whole different outlook about it. Maybe slowly starts to develop. Is Would you say that's the case? I would, and I would call it story medicine. You know, we can take herbs as medicine. We can take substance that grows from the earth to heal our bodies. Story is is a a soul medicine. And something Mm -hmm. absolutely starts shifting when we start sharing those stories. And another uh, type of stories that start shifting and healing our psyche as women is the realization of how honored girls were in indigenous cultures when they came of age and how honored women were for their cyclicity and for the time of the menses in in the red tents, in the moon lodges and, and the huts. And that in itself also has such a soothing and healing effect on our psyche to realize that it has not always been such a taboo and such a curse, but mm-hmm. there were times when there was a whole different picture so just these two aspects alone start shifting for women uh, symptoms and cramps and PMS and and the realization that really what the physical symptoms and, and sometimes emotional symptoms too are designed to do is to call our attention to stop, to call our attention to honor ourselves, to go within that what happens is that when we are at odds with our cyclicity, when we are at odds with the need, the profound need to go inside and to stop and to rest and to dream and to be and to create rather than to continue to do, that when we don't attune to that, our body starts screaming at us with symptoms, physical symptoms and uh, emotional symptoms, 
So those symptoms are not necessary, but they are there to get our attention. And if we don't stop ourselves, then our body will scream at us to stop. Okay. All right. Well, um, well, Deanna, um, I, I, I thank you for uh, sharing all of that, uh, you know, because I, I think it's so very valuable to women that they understand that and the wonderful work that you're doing with girls in the red tents in every neighborhood. Um, Trista, we're coming to the end of uh, our time with Deanna. Uh, I know it goes so uh, quick. <laughs> I know. I, I know it really does. Uh, you know, we just get going and we have to wrap it up. I feel like the time police. <laughs> um, but uh, do you have um, you know anything else you'd like to say uh, to Deanna before we have to say goodnight? Oh, I'm I'm so glad that you were able to join us. I um, if we had more time, I wanted to read a portion of her essay, but you should have her back to the show too and have her read. Um, it, it's a wonderful essay uh, that she did on menstruation, and I really appreciate all her work with the red tent. It's changed the way that um, I'm raising my daughter. And my daughter is nine, but she's already mm. so excited to start her blood. And she, I have already, just in case, bought her the um, cotton uh, re- reusable, I can't think what I want to say, eco-friendly pads that are yeah. like all cute and little girlish. And she's like excited and she knows yeah. we're going to have a big celebration for her. And it's so different than... Um, my first blood. So thank you, Deanna, for all that you do. Yes, it's my pleasure, Trista, and I'm so delighted to hear about your daughter. And I want to say that this is a a testament to the fact that it only takes one generation. Yes. You know, you are raising a daughter with a different consciousness. I'm raising a daughter who is now 14, completely different consciousness. That's all it takes for us, the moms, to change. Mm -hmm. And we said the dads as well to change, and then we're raising a different generation with a whole different consciousness, and that's all it takes. Wonderful. Well, Deanna, you are always welcome back on the show, and you haven't been on in a while, so why don't you also get back in touch with me shortly, and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we'll compare dates, and, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about all of this. All right. Thank you so much, Karen, and thank you, Trista, for... This beautiful anthology, and for you are such a weaver of web and of visions, and I really appreciate what you bring. Thank you, Deanna. Okay, Deanna, good night. And listeners, night. Uh, for Deanna's contact information, again, her website is deannalam.com, D-E-A-N-N-A-L-A-M.com. Deanna, thank you so much, and sorry to have My to pleasure. say goodbye, but we'll talk again soon. Yes. Good night. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Okay. All right. Well, I see um, Shinaz is uh, on the switchboard here. Am I pronouncing your name right? Oh, wait. Here we go. Here we go. Now, I think I have you now. Are you there, Shinaz? Yes, I am. And 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 do I and uh, I I only saw your name in print. I haven't heard it uh, spoken. Um, am I pronouncing it correctly? Okay, so uh, yeah, it is Shahnaz, but you can call me Shahnaz. Most people do. I don't mind. Okay. Well, let me introduce you to listeners, and thank you so much for calling in. Uh, Shahnaz is no, a absolutely. PhD. 
Ashnaz Hakani, she is a Ph.D. student of Islamic Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. She specializes in gender and sexuality in Islamic law, and her interests include Islamic feminism, female authority in Islam, and Pashtuns in the Western diaspora. Shanaz blogs at MuslimGirl.net. Um, well, you know, Shanaz, I don't know if you heard uh, Trista and I speaking at the beginning of the show, but uh, you know, we we sort of started the conversation out a bit um, about uh, you know Muslim feminism and maybe some of the 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 uh, the, the lack of awareness out there. Um, and I wonder if, if you'd like to speak to that a bit. Yes, absolutely. Uh, first of all, let me just say thank you so much for having me on the show and for willing to hear my perspective. And thank you also to all the reader, to all the listeners and to the readers of the book um, for willing to hear this perspective as well. And, of course, most importantly, thank you so much to Trista for uh, encouraging me to attend and speak today um, and also for welcoming my piece with open hands. Um, or open arms, as uh, as you say in English. Um, yes, so one of the things that I've been very... I had so much fun writing this piece, and it was done um, literally... I, I wrote it in a few minutes because I was very frustrated with the way that I had... that I that I felt like I was being treated by the Muslim community, uh, the patriarchal Muslim community, um, as well as the Western secular feminist community. And so there was a call for papers at my university for something on... Um, it was lonely feminist. And one and my friends were like, oh, my God, this totally describes you. Because I often speak about how lonely it is to be this, um, to be a Muslim feminist in a circle of people who, on the one hand, refuse to, 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 to recognize your identity as a feminist because you're a Muslim woman, um, because religion and feminism, but especially Islam and feminism, are completely incompatible, according to them. And the other perspective coming from Muslims, um, especially misogynist Muslims, who are like, no, we don't need feminism. Islam already gave us all these rights. And then you're like, well, where are those rights in practice? For me, feminism is this bridge between the rights that we claim we have um, on the one hand, but on the other hand, we, you know, we're working towards um, getting them, uh, putting it in practice. Um, so I wrote this piece literally out of this frustration. And so I was so glad when Trista came across it somehow and asked me to, you know, share it with her in this book. So thank you so much for that. Um, and then the responses to this, the, the funniest, the most ironic part, I guess, was that the, the, the same frustrations that I express in this essay, um, we see them, they're being played out in the responses to this, to, to this book, to this anthology of religious feminist work. So, for example, on feminism, on, on Facebook feminist pages, and even some of my own friends on, on Twitter, they see they see the picture of me holding this book with a with an excerpt, you know, for, for my essay, and they they refuse to understand how a woman how a woman could choose to be Muslim to be a Muslim and a feminist at the same time. And I'm like, that's exactly why the essay was written. That's exactly why this book exists. Um, so it's been very it's been really hard having to read these comments coming especially from feminists. The, the misogynists, I don't, I don't, I can deal with that. I've been living with that. But the one, the one group that I am having a very hard time dealing with right now is the feminists. Those who identify as feminists, who claim to be feminists, who claim to be helping and supporting, not helping, just supporting um, other feminists. But I'm like, do you not realize how misogynist you're, you're being right now? 
when you deny me my choice to identify as a feminist, my insistence that I know what I'm doing, I'm smart enough to know what I'm doing, that assuming that I have not thought about any of this, even if I haven't thought about this, how dare you think and assume that you know what's best for me? So, Shanaz, what do you ahead. think are the biggest misconceptions you know, because um, we, you know, Trist and I talked a little bit about, and I mean, I'll use my words, you know, it's really ignorance um, out there. I mean, we just have to, you know, be honest and candid. Um, you know, I, what, what do you think are the biggest misconceptions uh, from people who don't understand the mindset of uh, a Muslim feminist? You know, I think, I think that it has, to, I mean, it, it's very much the media it is ignorance is a huge part of this. They're, they're ignorant because the media itself refuses to show this the side of the of the Muslim woman's life. But I think it's I think it's more that the the, the the Muslim politics, Muslim politics with Western nations right now, um, they have presented us, and especially because all, all these wars are taking place, so that Muslim women can be liberated. Right? We know that. Wait, 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 Shanaz, Shanaz, let me let me. I, I want to make sure listeners really hear everything you're saying, um, and I. I have a feeling that maybe you're turning your turning your mouth away from the phone. Um, I, I, can you make sure you're speaking directly into the phone? And if you could maybe just speak just a little bit slower, um, that would that would help a lot um, because I want everybody to hear sure. what you have to say because it's very important. Okay, so I'm using a mic. Is this better? That's much better. I'm so glad. I yes, okay. it's much better. Yes. Okay. Okay. Great. Um, yes, I'm, I'm using the mic. It's just harder on the phone at this point. Um, yes, and I'll try to speak less slowly because I, I have a habit of speaking very fast, and I apologize for that. I'm working on that. Um, so yes, I was saying that I think it's it, no, it's definitely the media. Um, the media plays a, a significant role in how we perceive of, of, the, of people who we do not have a direct connection to. Um, I think these days there's no excuse to not understand a Muslim feminist, to not understand Muslim feminisms or Muslims in general. We have social media. We Muslims are so present actively on social media, and Muslim feminists too. So I don't think there's any fair excuse. Um, but the media plays this, this important role in, um, in 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 providing information, and in this case, mostly false information um, that makes makes audience think that Muslims are barbaric people who treat their women. Um, as who, all of all of whom all of their women as second-class citizens, um, they are very misogynistic, and there's no movement within their religion, within Muslim cultures and communities, um, to work against that. And so, we, even 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 within Muslim feminist circles, I've I've noticed that um, when our voices are rarely rarely recognized, what happens instead is we have to have a white non-Muslim women who study Islamic feminism come in and speak on our behalf to non-Muslim people to say, hey, listen to me. Muslim feminism does exist, and it's real. And we're like, we've been saying the same thing for the past three decades. Where have you been? So it's, it's a matter of platform. Uh, we have been providing ourselves, we have been creating these platforms for ourselves, but no one cares. No one wants to pay attention. Um, the media are run by primarily, you know, obviously non-Muslims and who have a very specific agenda of um, spewing certain information about Islam and other uh, people who have been otherized historically. So I think the media is the main issue here. Um, I do think ignorance plays a major role, but I think that at this point, in 2015, there's really no reason to remain ignorant. 
because the, when when you hear for these, these these feminists on Facebook, for example, when they hear that there's such a such a phenomenon as Islamic feminism, the the, the most important thing they, sh- thing they should do right now is Google that. And I understand that you know you have there's so much conflicting information on Google, but you'll find something. You'll at least recognize that oh my God, there's this thing exists. So let me see, let me hear the different perspectives. You'll you'll find the different perspectives. Contact someone who identifies as a Muslim feminist and ask her questions instead of just telling her no, 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 that you you can't exist, you don't exist. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's 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 really. I, I think it's it's the media. It's the media's responsibility to be providing a more fair set of information that it refuses to do. Well, you know, if we relied on the media, <laughs> you know, we would we would be That's waiting true. a long time, you know, because honestly, we all have our complaints about the media. You know, the media is just sort of dominated by corporate interests and, you know, we're all just sort of you know, uh, brainwashed to know what they want us to know. I mean, anybody who's traveled to Europe can see the difference between, uh, you know, the media there is a little bit better than I think the media here. I mean, I was just having a conversation yeah. with somebody recently that said that she believes the the news on Al Jazeera more than she believes the news, uh, you know, on, on some of the, you know, the major American networks. And, um, you know, I do too in, in, in some cases. I really do. Oh yeah, no, no, uh, absolutely. I, I think, I think, I think what happens is it's our responsibility to be to, to 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 question and to challenge what we hear because we have yeah. at one point you have to sit there and ask yourself this this can't be it. I mean, there has to be more diversity than this, right? Um, but I meant more that the media plays on the political side at least. The media provides them this information um, on the on the political side where we come to think of all Muslims and all Muslim nations and all Muslim cultures as a monolith, which is not obviously uh, real. Um, and so that plays a significant role in how people perceive, which I think explains very much the, the reaction specifically to Islamic feminism. People well, aren't responding no, as Trista tells me. I, I you know I think Chris, Chris, I'll just say Christians. You know I'm a recovering Catholic, so I think I can speak for Christians a little bit. You know we have to stop and think how many different types of Christians there are. You know there's not right. this monolithic Christianity either. I mean Christianity is like all over the place. You know we have what we call you know cafeteria Catholics or cafeteria Christians. You know we all sort of pick and choose the kinds of things that. Um, uh, you know, that we're going to believe or not going to believe. And, you know, I, I've interviewed a lot of, uh, you know, women who have escaped fundamentalist, uh, you know, Christi- Christian groups as well. And, um, you know, if, if there is, I, 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 for some reason it feels like to me the media um, does give a pass to fundamentalist Christianity where it doesn't give a pass to Islam much at all. You know, if that if that makes uh, any sense to you, you know, um, you know, where where Muslims are is seem to automatically be circumspect to begin with, where you know they're willing to to tolerate craziness from the religious right. You know, I mean, the religious right is out there. Uh, trying to, um, you know, I, I mean, kids are killing themselves because they're, if they're gay, because they're, you know, they're told they're an abomination. But somehow that, uh, you know, that gets a pass in some quarters. 
um, I, I don't know if, if I'm making sense here, but I can. I guess what I'm saying is I can really understand your frustration because you feel totally misunderstood, and um, um, I, I think I would I would feel frustrated too. You know, it, it, it's almost as if you um, you know you you need more of a platform for people to get to know you and see you because I, I think unfortunately you can't expect people to come looking for you in a way you know um you know if sometimes i think people are busy and they're like these hamsters on a wheel and they're not going to come looking to try to understand this group or that group if it's not in front of them i think they don't even see it and they don't even see it sometimes when it is in front of them you know it's it's problematic for us to i think um understand diversity and um and teach people tolerance and diversity i, I mean i think it's a lifetime uh, of learning unfortunately no, well, and i think a lot of people have gotten away from reading and and even just going out i mean americans in general i don't think are the most well-traveled people um anyway i know i Shanaz, i kind of interrupted you so what were you going to say no no <laughs> no no you're right I'm, I think I think reading is yeah reading is an issue here right people don't want to read things, um, but yeah. even then like okay if they don't want to read it's like why can't and, and I'm I'm just I'm, I just want to I clearly want an ideal world here where people are willing to listen to a different perspective and and mm-hmm. even without necessarily agreeing with it just recognize that it exists, um, but mm-hmm. fine don't don't you know don't read we're too lazy to read now but why not just Admit that okay, maybe maybe this is if this is your reality, then this is your reality. Why? Because what these feminists are doing, and and it's so, it hurts me to say this because I have to fight with them, with, with Muslim misogynists to say that no, 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 I am a feminist. And when they tell me that, fem, but feminists don't accept you, I'm like, some of them do, <laughs> right? And it's like, well, the, the misogynists are wrong. It's like we, they, we're in this, we're in a space where we're not, we. we we're not accepted in either space, and we don't know. We don't. We don't need to be accepted in either space. We just want to be heard, and we just want to be respected and acknowledged. Right. And these, well, these, you know, these, if, yeah. if there's any consolation, you know, um, you know, I was telling Trista that uh, I, I mean, I totally can relate to that. You know, because it's some, you know, feminists often, you know, have this purity test. You know, are you feminist enough? You know, and I get in trouble right. sometimes because I'm not radical feminist enough because I'm not hard enough on men. You know, I'm not hard enough on transgenders. Um, and then I get blasted from the other side that thinks feminism is a horrible thing. You know, so I think we all sort of get squeezed. Um, and, you know, we just, I think, have to, you know, stand in our truth and in our integrity and do our best every day, every day, every day to try to educate the masses. Because I, I think about how successful the um, gays have been in our country, you know. They, um, I, I mean, for a long time, it it feels like to me, um, you know, being gay was not okay. And then suddenly people started to realize that, you know, they were our neighbors and they were our coworkers and they were in our family and it's just no big deal. And I think in time that will happen uh, with Muslims as well, you know, as um, as we know more. Uh, you know, I, I think about myself. I grew up in the Bible Belt of New Orleans. I never met anybody who who wasn't a Christian. You know, you have to remember that some people never 
meet Muslims, you know, and they maybe only hear the horrible stuff that's on the news. And no, not that that that's an excuse, but people, I think, in general are kind of lazy, and they're they're just not going to take it as their moral obligation to understand other cultures, especially Americans. Like uh, I think Trista said, so many of them never travel outside the United States. I think less than 20% of Americans even have passports. And then when they do go to other countries, they have this elitist attitude of, you know, America is great and everybody else is, is you know, not as good as them. It's, it's really horrible, you know, that ugly American syndrome. Um, and I don't know, you know, I talk about it because I've traveled with Mer- Americans. I've taken them on trips to other countries, and sometimes I've really been embarrassed. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot going on here, you know, and, and um, I think Americans might one day catch up, but um, Americans have a lot to learn about a lot of things, quite frankly. Yes, they do. Oh yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Um, um, I go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, well, well, Trista, um, I, you know, as a as a Muslim feminist, um, I mean, uh, you know, you and Shanaz have so much in common. When when you two, if if you two got together for girls' night, um, what would the conversation sound like? Probably a lot like this. I mean, very much like this. I think we would have a fun. We were just talking about this that I should come out to Austin. Um, You know, I would say one thing that I think people don't realize with Muslim, the Muslim sisterhood is very strong, and I mean, it's kind of I don't know how to describe it. I I feel like it's almost indescribable. It's like a gift that we have kind of lost in in the West, and I think it's one of the things that drew me to Islam, um, is this really strong sense of community and um, social support. Um, You know, we had a member of our community here in Portland who um, died prematurely of a um, brain cancer, and his whole hospital room was always filled to the brim with people, children, everyone bringing things, supporting his family, um, we don't have that in the U.S. most mm-hmm. of the time. Uh, it's very rare, and it's it's a really beautiful thing. Um, it's something that I wish more people would, and that's why I think it's so important for people to get to know their Muslim neighbors. I mean, here in Portland, we have a wonderful Muslim community um, that's involved in a lot of interfaith work, and the potlucks um, that we have here are open to everyone, and there are people from all over the world, different cultures, different foods, um, and, and a lecture series, so people can, like, get to know Muslims in a natural, you know, setting over a meal where you can talk and get to know each other. My grandparents, who um, were very Christian and, you know, both passed in the 90s used to go um, and loved it. So I, I think things like that are really important. I think interfaith work is really important so do I. Absolutely. So do I. I really do. And and Shanaz, I I mean this is my this is my own bias and you know and and maybe you know my listeners from Texas will write me and say Karen you're off the mark. But I think being in Texas doesn't help. Um yeah, at least it's bl- the blue part of uh, the blue part of Texas. So that might make it a little bit easier. You know what's funny um, is, so my yeah 
can I no go ahead I just, okay so um yeah so I live in Austin and I'm not just in Austin I live in I I I'm, I surround myself mostly and I think this is intentional um, mostly with university students who for the most part part understand and, and appreciate what I do and to the point where recently um, and Tristan knows about this because I announced it on my Facebook um, one of someone a male a white male uh, non-Muslim friend of mine whom I know only through Facebook said something really derogatory about Muslim women and Muslim women's choice of clothing. And I didn't know how to respond to that because for the past several years, I've only been surrounded by people who are intelligent enough and decent enough and open-minded enough to, come to without agreeing with me on everything, to just respect what I have to say and then respond to me respectfully, you know, to express their disagreements, to the, to, so that I don't know what to do with this guy. I'm just sitting there like, oh, my gosh, is this, are, you, are you real? Do you really exist? And, and this guy lives in Texas. <laughs> Well, I think that's a problem most of us feminists run into quite often, you know, because no matter what kind of feminist you are, you run into those kinds of guys. Trust me. Yes. (laughs) Well, um, we are about out of time, uh, Shanaz, but uh, I have enjoyed speaking to you. and, And I really do hope our conversation will raise awareness among listeners and will encourage them to Google, uh, you know, Muslim feminism or go to your your blog, uh, muslimgirl.net. Um, thank you so much uh, for being on the show tonight and, and sharing your perspective. And Trista, did you have anything you wanted to say to Shanaz before well, we uh, I say just, goodnight? I, I found her essay online as we were finishing up the anthology, and I instantly was in love with it because she put into words so many of my frustrations for so long that that I, I had never really been able to put into words. I mean, it was just a brilliant essay, and I I really appreciate her allowing us to include it, and um, I've really enjoyed getting to know you over the last couple months, so thank you. No, it's been, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Just one correction. Um, so I don't I don't blog at muslimgirl.net. I, I support that blog, and I've contributed to that. I have my own blog, um, and it's orbala.wordpress.com. So I just thought I would make okay. that correction. That that okay. is my mistake. I'm so sorry. For some reason, no, 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 no there. problem. It probably make I mean, okay. it makes sense because at that time I was writing for MuslimGirl.net. Ah, so. uh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, sorry about that. Okay. All but, right. No, 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 no problem. Thank you guys so much for having me. Oh, well, any time. Thank you so much, Shanaz. And uh, maybe we'll talk about you being on the show at a later time as well because uh, I'm really interested in uh, what you're specializing there, uh, you know, gender and sexuality and Islamic law. I think that could be a really interesting uh, show one night. So we'll, I we'll think be that would touch. be really yeah. interesting, too, if you could get Keisha Alley on with you. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> that okay, would, be, that on it, would be a great show. Okay, let's sure, let's work sure. on that. I think that would really be a, a fun and important uh, conversation. Okay, definitely. Okay, so uh, good night and all the best to you there in Austin. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Bye bye. So Trista, um, what did you think about our um, uh, your contributors uh, coming on tonight? Oh, I thought it was was fantastic. Um, you know, I always enjoy hearing someone's voice, and I am familiar with Diana's and Monette's, but um, I'd like, I think it's just a deeper level of connection with women when you can talk as opposed to emailing or whatever else, um, Skype or, anyway, I, I thought it was I fantastic. So. 
Well, and you know, you we we started to talk a little bit about more a little more about the anthology, but we had to sort of break away so we could start a, sort of stay on time. Um, uh, you know, maybe just say a little bit more about the different topics uh, that are covered uh, in the anthology. Well, there is a lot of different uh, stuff in here. Um, we have a lot on goddess spirituality, um, feminism and goddess and Judaism. Um, let's see. There's um, perspectives from exited to prostitute. Um, a lot on, there's quite a few different essays on menstruation. Um, I wrote an essay specific um, specifically on money, which I think we also kind of tend not to talk about within feminism. Um, and, gosh, we have indigenous struggles and mothering is spiritual and political resistance. Um, and then there's a lot of, like, really kind of mystical, um, I wouldn't even call them essays, but there's, there's some of my favorites are actually more on the mystical realm because I think sometimes that's where I'm lacking. <laughs> um, so a real, a real so, diverse array of... Uh, of voices, it sounds like. Yeah, I wanted to keep things really open-ended. Um, that's just kind of part of my personality. I've done a lot of interfaith work, and I feel like the only way that we really, like the path to peace to me is through inter- interfaith work and listening to each other's stories, particularly um, women, um, because I think we have a special ability to bond with each other. And um, Diana talks a lot about that in her uh, menstruation essay is just breaking down these cultural barriers by, you know, having these real conversations about our first blood and our life experiences. And, you know, we're not so different. And when we kind of like let go of our um, preconceived notions about each other and actually listen to each other's stories, I think it's really empowering for us individually and collectively as women. And, and you know, I, I might be wrong about this. You know, it, it, I'm, it might just sound like I've sort of drank the feminist Kool-Aid. But, you know, I think patriarchy doesn't encourage women to talk and share with one another. You know, it, it teaches us to compete. Uh, it teaches us maybe not to trust one another. Uh, you know, that resources are, are scarce and we have to compete for men and compete for jobs and compete for grades and, um, and uh, you know, I, and, and it's such a shame, really, uh, because, it, it, but maybe it's, it, it's a design, you know. Uh, you know, maybe it's designed that way because if we did uh, come into oneness, uh, you know, women, uh, I think that would be the end of patriarchy, uh, you know, quite it frankly. Would. Mhm. It definitely would. Well, um, it was my pleasure to be included in the anthology. I want to uh, thank you so much for uh, for including my voice as well. Uh, when I saw the incredible diversity of uh, of the voices, I thought, ah, oh, you know how nice. You know, this is really a place I could I could be proud to have uh, have some of my work. Well, I'm so glad that you did contribute to the anthology because I love your essay. I always enjoy your writing. So um, I, if we have time, we could ask you a few questions. Uh, yeah, we, have a, we, have a, we have a little bit of time left. Okay. 
Well, you did an anthology yourself, um, Voices of the Sacred Feminine, Conversations to Reshape Our World, which was amazing. Um, so what was your opinion of Whatever Works when you when it came out? Well, um, you know, I, 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 I thought how important it was to have new voices, you know. Um, you know, some of the women in your anthology uh, were new to me, and it was it was wonderful to get to know them. Because I think something that that happens maybe in our feminist community and in the goddess spirituality community is, you know, we hear from the same people over and over and over again. And and they and not that they don't have important things to say, but you know, sometimes new voices add a different perspective. And you know, honestly, I, I think we need um, sort of the new guard, if you will. You know, some of our, uh, you know, some of our elders or or elders now, and you know, they're going to have to maybe pass the torch, you know, to some younger women to continue the work. And um, it, it was good to see, uh, you know, uh, new voices, I guess, uh, it, is is what I'm trying to say. You know, not not the same old. Uh, you know the same old, same old, and and that's sort of what I aim for in in the anthology that's based on the radio show as well. You know, while you know mm-hmm. you do have well-known names like you know maybe Noam Chomsky or Starhawk or uh, Selena Fox. You know, you also have besides you know you you have more than just women, uh, and you also have people who uh, whose names will be new. Uh, I think to readers, you know, to introduce. I have to them. say, I was so surprised, but also happy to see that Noam Chomsky was in there because I I thought that was so fresh. <laughs> I wouldn't well, expect him to be an anthology like that. I thought that was brilliant. Well, you know, I think it goes to show how diverse the umbrella uh-huh. of the sacred feminine really is and uh and that was part of what I wanted to do just like you you know to really show the diversity because you know um in, until I started reading some of his work I didn't realize that you know he might not call his you know Noam Chomsky I'm sure probably doesn't call his view of the world goddess ideals but they certainly are in my mind in alignment with goddess ideals so we find allies that's sort of my point right. we find common ground and allies well, I think a and, lot of people don't realize the social justice aspect to me that is in goddess I think a lot of times people think goddess is like new age or whatever and to me like your essay it really is about liberation theology and social justice yeah yeah because i mean look even growing up in the goddess community um i found that lacking myself and i think that's uh, that was a disappointment for me um you know it you could find people who taught you about goddess or you would read books about goddess uh and the wheel of the year and doing rituals and astrology and tarot and you know just this and that and this and that but the social justice a- uh, angle was really missing and it was such a shame because that's what we really need to shape the world you know that's the next step I, I think when somebody learns about goddess, yeah, they want to learn about goddesses and ritual and, you know, all of those important things. But the next step to, uh, I think, as you evolve in the spirituality, is you start to understand the social justice aspect. Yeah. So in your in your contributing essay, you talk about interpreting goddess mythology and provide some insight as to how these myths actually give us a roadmap um, for building a more just and sustainable future. Um, do you want to elaborate on that a bit more? 
Well, you know, for instance, um, you know, I talk, I take different myths and, and I point to how, you know, believe it or not, you know, if we really just took the time to read, you know, like uh, like Shanaz was saying, if we just took the time to read about, you know, Muslim feminism, you know, if we really looked at some of the pre-patriarchal myths of goddess or even the patriarchal myths, you can find uh, the kernels of wisdom in there. I mean, like, for instance, Sedna, the Inuit goddess, you know, she's sort of the environmental goddess. And, you know, I'm not going to go into the whole myth, but that's just one example. You know, uh, she teaches us uh, about avoiding greed and uh, and balance in nature so that there's not exploitation. And that right there alone, you know, if we had that as the central myth uh, in our world, what a better place it would be, you know, without greed and exploitation. Uh, Demeter and Persephone, um, you know, I I learned in when I taught the Cakes for the Queen of Heaven classes that um, the Demeter and Persephone myth, the pre-patriarchal myth, you know, doesn't even have Hades in it. It's more a story of a mother and daughter. It's about a, a mother um, learning to allow her daughter to go on and live her own life and the daughter, you know, uh, becoming empowered enough to be able to do that. You know, Demeter decides that she's going to, you know, release Persephone and allow her, um, you know, to go down into the underworld to be of service to the people there that that Persephone believes need her. Uh, And and I've sort of extrapolated on that, you know. We're all either mothers or daughters. And if Demeter and Persephone myth is, is... you know, trying to create better relationships between mothers and daughters, let's take the next step and say, let's have better relationships among women. Let there be solidarity among women. Let women support one another, you know, instead of, unfortunately, what we find too often, you know, to coin the phrase of Phyllis Chesler, you know, a famous feminist, you know, woman's inhumanity to woman. And, um, and like we said a moment ago, you know, if we could get rid of the separateness, if we could get rid of the wedge issues that divide us, um, you know, we would, I believe we would change the world in short order. Yeah, I agree fully. Okay, so one more question. Um, One subject you're passionate about is being a voice for solidarity and inclusion. It might seem obvious, but why do you feel the need to shed light on embracing these values? Well, you know, um, I I look at the sacred feminine, you know, as liberation theology, and I guess what I mean by that is all the different things that goddess teaches us, you know, caring, sharing, partnership, negotiation, our interconnection, um, you know, if, if you know, uh, the, uh, you know, it's not about exploitation. It's not about domination. Um, it, it feels like to me, if we really looked at that, and that became the norm, instead of um, you know what we see in the world today, that um, that that in itself, you know, changes the world. You know, uh, we would go from a you know, from having, you know, the lives that we lead, you know, in this predator capitalism, uh, you know, we would go to a world where there was enough for everyone. You know, all of the mother's resources would be, you know, distributed in such a way that everybody would have what they need instead of some people being denied, you know, the basic necessities of life. And it feels like to me if all of these different groups who are, you know, let's call it oppressed by the patriarchy, whether it be women, you know, 
minorities, uh, you know, workers who under, are under the thumb of, you know, their corporate overlords, you know, smaller companies who are at the mercy of uh, countries who are at the mercy of bigger countries, um, employees at the mercy of their boss, you know, all of these different things. You know, if we got to the point where um, all of the oppressed people stood together and said, you know what, we're not going to take it anymore. You know, we want fairness, we want justice, we want equality. All the things that I believe goddess teaches us in, in different myths, then, you know, that's how we make the world worth living. You know, that's, and, and right there in goddess spirituality, you know, it's been swept beneath the rug. But if we could, you know, open it up and shed light on it and teach more people, you know, what goddess mythology actually teaches us, we we have the roadmap, you know, it's just, are we willing to change, you know, are we willing to, um, you know, do what's necessary to make the world a better place, are we going to care about our brother and sister? So That's that, a that's great point, I don't know if you... Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I don't know if you happen to see this, if you follow spiritual uh, ecology, but they had a great cartoon on the other day um, and it was two two little shots first who wants to change everyone has their hand up who wants to change everybody's hand is down I'm sorry I didn't hear the end of it one more could you say it one more oh, time okay so it, it was a cartoon with two two shots and the first um, it, it's asking a group of people who wants to change and everyone has their hand up and the second one who wants to change and everybody's <laughs> hand is down <laughs> Well, yeah, because, I mean, you know, change is a scary thing, isn't it, you know? Um, and and even sometimes, um, what is that expression, the devil you know? Um, you know, the devil you know, even though it's the devil, at least you know what to expect. You know, change right. is this big question mark, this big unknown. So, you know, sometimes it can be scary and we just, well, and they say that's the difference between conservatives and liberals. You know, I read this this article once about the amygdala in the brain is literally different between conservatives and liberals. And conservatives oh, tend to support authority um, because it makes them feel safe, even if the authority oppresses, where liberals tend to be willing to take chances and are willing to try new things. And I don't know. I, I it, that it, that made perfect sense to me, really. You know, it helped me understand why maybe people would impose this horrible, you know, conservative austerity, uh, even though it makes people suffer. Uh, but you know, uh, or this idea of trickle down. Everybody knows trickle down doesn't work. You know, trickle down economics. But you know, we keep doing the same things over and over again, um, rather than trying something different, even though the you know the the things that we keep doing don't don't really work for the most of us. So well, that's kind of what I was aiming at with this anthology is whatever works, kind of throwing things up, trying them. You know, I feel like my whole life has kind of been that way. Like, okay, I'll try this for a while. Okay, it doesn't work for me, but this does, and and just finding and adjusting new ways of being and living because. I think a lot of the ways that we are living now, especially environmentally speaking, aren't working, and we really need to be creative and kind of just have a free-for-all, like a, a brainstorming session. You know, what can we do now? What will work, and how can we move forward? 
Yeah, and and I think that was really brilliant uh, on your part, Trista, you know, because we do have to, I think, encourage a bit more fearlessness uh, because, uh, yeah, I mean, because the the, the old ways no longer work. So, you know, we have to find... uh, you know, find some courage to take, take, you know, take some chances and, um, you know, be, you well, know, and I think that's a lot of it. People are afraid of failing. And to me, you have to fail to grow. Yeah, absolutely. And because, to move you know, forward, you know? Yeah, you think about it, you know, um, oftentimes it, it's our, it's our hardest challenges that teach us the most. Uh, and sometimes when things don't turn out the way we we maybe wanted them to turn out, um, you know that builds our character. I think it teaches us some of the important lessons we need to, you know, maybe um, you know uh, jump the next hurdle, you know, or 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 even or an even bigger hurdle, you know. So I I commend you for your fearlessness. Well, thank you. And I mean, and I know your story too. I mean, you know, you, um, you know, you were raising two kids, you know, by yourself, and um, you know, you you've had a difficult time. And look at the wonderful work you've put out there in the world with the with this Girl God series. Do you, did you want to mention that a little bit for listeners who might not have discovered it yet? Well, I was thinking about this when you were talking about um, goddess stories because that's one thing that in raising my daughter differently than, than how I was raised. I feel like the goddess stories are really important. We have a couple series, you know, um, Burley Mutant has a great series for girls, um, and then uh, Patricia Monahan. But mine is The Girl God, and I started with The Girl God book, um, which is just a conversation I had with my daughter because she couldn't identify with a male god, um, which really kind of sparked this whole light in me that I think had been kind of, dampened for a long time trying to be practical and doing all the things I thought I should be doing. Um, But now I have three books in that series and I have plans to do many more. And basically I feel like, like in kind of what I was saying to Deanna, that I sometimes feel hopeless with adults, like their minds are already closed and they don't um, listen or read so much, but children absorb so much and they are in a space where they want to learn new things and they challenge things and they they see things with fresh eyes. So um, I have a lot of fun with the books for kids because my children inspire me with the things that they say and um, give me fresh perspective all the time. And um, I really want to bring the divine feminine to children. So so you started out with the girl God and then what was the Mm -hmm. second one? The second is Mother Earth, and then I have a book for boys called Tell Me Why. Okay, and and that uh, that sort of was birthed out of your teaching your son? Yeah, you know, well, first of all, he felt a little bit left out, and I had always wanted to do a book for boys. I kind of get these, what I do with my books is I get an idea in my mind, and then I kind of just let it sit for a while until until I have what I want to do, and then usually I can just sit down and write it, and then the hard part is actually putting it all together, which is where my mom and my husband are really helpful because all the small details drive me crazy. I'm more of I'm an idea person, and then um, they're really good. You know, my husband helps with the website and the design of the book and the layout, and my mom is like a wonderful editor. Um, so 
I feel like I need both of them or I would just have craziness everywhere. Uh, too many ideas all at once. It, well, and, and there's wonderful art in the books as well. They're gorgeous. Yes. They, they're, and so, they're coffee table yeah. books almost. Well, we're actually working on putting together a trilogy. My husband had this great idea um, to put all three books together and do a Girl God trilogy. And ultimately, because we haven't printed, I've I've had to put all the cost in myself. So we've just been printing small batches here and there. But we've never been able to do a hardcover. But Elizabeth's work really deserves a hardcover, beautiful book. Um, so that's what we're gearing up to. Um, I'm going to make a few changes to the quotes um, on the Girl God book and do a second edition on that. And then I have uh, ideas for at least five different books that I want to do. My problem is, is I'm always short on time, and I have more ideas than I have hours in the day. <laughs> well, I'm sure you will get to those, and I, 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 for one, honestly, really look forward to them, because um, these are wonderful books. I mean, they they truly are. Uh, I, I mean, I think they're great for adults and kids, and, uh, and you know, and I don't think we should give up on the non-kids, you know, because I have to tell you, I actually get emails um, from people uh, who say, gee, Karen, I listened to your radio show and, you know, you opened up a whole new horizon. You know, you opened up a world to me. So, you know, I, mm-hmm. they're, they're, you know, you might not hear from them, Trista, but they're out oh, there. Oh, I do. And actually, I have just as many people buying the books for themselves as I do. Um, and even therapists have bought the books to, to um, do art therapy and whatnot with patients and working through um sexual abuse trauma and all different things so it actually has evolved into something that I didn't foresee when I wrote the books Um, but really first and foremost I wrote them for my children because I feel like the way that I was raised was just slowly suffocating and burying me and I wanted to raise my daughter in a way that she was always lifted up and could really not spend the rest of her life unburying herself because I feel like I literally do that still, you know, like where I'm just like digging my way out of my own grave or something. <laughs> well, you know what? You you are making, uh, you know, you, you have contributed so much with just these books and uh, your your other ideas. Uh, I'm sure they're going to be gold as well. So, um, you know, thank thank you for finding a way to put your creativity out there you know, to benefit uh, so many kids and so many adults as well. Uh, you're you're pretty awesome. Thank you, Karen. That's me. It's a <laughs> lot coming from you because you're totally awesome. <laughs> oh well, you know. Well, thank you, thank you. Where well, you know, I, it's what can I say? It's the sacred feminine. She inspires us, right? <laughs> well, I think so. I think we get more awesome as we. Um, we'll just brag on ourselves now. Um, as we kind of embrace, because I think. Uh, coming up in like a fundamentalist Christian um, background that it was always, you know, be quiet, be submissive, be humble, um, mm-hmm. kind of yeah. all these things of like pushing yourself down. Well, you can't really ever reach your full potential when you're under that narrative because you're always going to kind of demure to the men and, you know, and accept Absolutely. abuse. And, you know, I mean, I, I feel like under these very patriarchal conservative traditions, um, whatever faith tradition it might be, just on the conservative end, that we're really putting women into situations where they will be abused. 
because we're not yeah. treating them and raising them in a way that they have self-esteem and that they know who they are and that they have power and confidence. Yeah, I, I mean, let's just let's just say candidly, and you know, and, and I'm comfortable saying this. You know, the patriarchal religions gives men license to uh, devalue and oppress women, and it and it teaches women, it conditions women to accept that type of horrible abuse, and it is abuse. Um, and you know, and that's that's why people like Jimmy Carter you know, have been so vocal, you know, here's a famous Christian, have been so vocal about leaving his church because it leaves women uh, uh, unable to reach their fullest potential. And I'm sorry, that's a sin, you know, that's a sin. And it's discrimination and it's all sorts of horrible things. So, well, um, I think we're probably going to have to call that, uh, you know, call it for tonight. Uh, I owe Joe Carson a commercial and uh, we're almost out of time, but uh, it's it's been a wonderful uh, show, and I want to thank you for putting together uh, Deanna and uh, Monette, and um, and um, I, I have to look to see how to pronounce her Shana. name again. I, well, I, and I'm I am horrible. I'm horrible with names. I mean, to give you an idea, I mispronounce my own husband's name. I don't know what <laughs> is wrong with me, but something in my brain does not click right with the language and pronunciation so my apologies uh well that's okay you get an awful lot uh, an awful lot right and and you know and i and i want to say i hope i did not you know misspeak tonight you know talking about um uh, you know uh, uh you know muslim feminism you know i i hoped that i would you know in in my words to shanaz you know i hoped i was trying to get the point across that you know, all of us feminists are struggling in one way or another, you know, and, um, uh, and, and you know, maybe we each have our unique set of struggles depending on our background or the groups that we find ourselves in. Um, and I don't know, I, I just hope it, you know, my words, I, I, I was struggling really hard not to be offensive, and um, I, I hope I well, didn't Well, I think it's speak. really important, and I really appreciate that you brought and you have allowed me to discuss Islamic feminism on your show several times now because I think most people run the other direction. So I really honor you and appreciate you having the courage to do so. And, you know, we're all learning. I'm learning every day. Every one of us is, you know, evolving and learning about things. And I think Islamic feminism is is hard because we have so many preconceived notions and and so many barriers that have been built up between different sets of women that, you know, we don't want there. We want to bring them down and all be together and happy and support each that's, other. So Exactly, and that, that's a great And I know uh, that that's your intent. So, yes, it is. It, it really is. And, uh, you know, and, and maybe sometimes Muslim women have it a little bit harder because just by virtue of the fact if they're a Muslim woman who, say, for instance, wears a headscarf, you know... I would say without a doubt that Muslim women do have it harder because I've been both, and I it's, yeah. it's very difficult to be a Muslim woman in the United States. It's very, yeah. very difficult. And, and especially with the political climate right now, you know, there's so much ignorance yeah. and intolerance out there. And uh, so, yeah, so we, we do have to be supportive of one another and... Uh, you know, and uh, thank you for, in, you know, 
for for being a, a voice for that because uh, we maybe we don't have enough of those voices here in the United States. I think just the listening is so important. So I really honor and appreciate everyone who's listened to the show tonight. And, you know, that's where it starts is listening to each other's stories and being willing to listen because a lot of people aren't. Absolutely. Imagine a red tent of diverse religions instead of maybe... That's always uh, been my dream. You're giving me goosebumps. <laughs> well, you know what? I think that's what you got to do next. Uh, you know, I'm, Well, Deanna I'm, has done a lot of, and, and I don't know if she's spoken on your show about this specifically, but her work um, with Israeli and Palestinian women in the red tent is really, really inspiring. Um, well, maybe that's something I'll ask her to talk about when I have her back. Definitely. Because, Next uh, time you have her on the show, have her um, have her talk about that because it's uh, it, it's amazing. Okay. All right. Well, I am going to have to say good night uh, because I owe Joe Carson a commercial. But thank you so very much, <laughs> Trista. And I'm sure oh, we'll thank stay you in touch so much, on Facebook. Karen. It's always a pleasure. Oh yeah, definitely. I just posted two of those uh, things on your wall that I was discussing during the show. <laughs> okay. All right. Wonderful. Thank you, and and uh, I'm sure we'll chat soon. Good night. Okay. Thanks so much, Karen. All right. Bye bye. Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed uh, the diverse conversations we had tonight and, um, you know, maybe got some new ideas from some of our conversations. And uh, before I go for the night, I owe Joe Carson a commercial. And here we go. Give a listen. Thank you. Most people see humankind is really separate from nature and separate from the earth. I'm as much of this earth as a rock or a tree is. And I came out of it. This is, this is my mother planet. I grew out of this earth. As long as we conceive of divinity as above us or outside of us, or that our bodies are somehow less divine than spirit, there's no way that we can change our course. Well, uh, that was uh, Serena Roney Dougal, Ph.D., speaking in Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia. Dancing with Gaia explores the connection between Earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the goddess as Gaia. It features 15 visionaries who give us tools to feel the life of the planet within ourselves. The DVD comes with a 45-page mini-book, and you know what? It costs just 20 bucks. And you can get your own copy of the book and the DVD at DancingWithGaia.com. DancingWithGaia.com. All right, dear listeners, uh, that uh, that about wraps it up for tonight. Um, if you've liked what you've been hearing tonight or in past shows, I hope you'll show your appreciation and support. Uh, please go to my KarenTate.com website. Once you're there, uh, go to the Goddess Store page. Scroll down all the way to the bottom. Uh, maybe buy a book. Uh, you know, as you're scrolling down, if you see something you like. Uh, but if you go all the way down to the bottom, you will come to a PayPal button that will allow you to make a donation of any amount. And I would sure appreciate it if you would help me uh, pay for the airtime here and keep Voices of the Sacred Feminine uh, on the air. 
Uh, yes, I pay out of my pocket, uh, you know, to keep bringing you these wonderful guests. Uh, airtime is not free. And imagine, I keep putting it out there, imagine if all of my regular listeners just sent in $5, $5, that, uh, that would probably pay for the show for the rest of the year. How fantastic would that be? So I put it out there. And uh, please check out my Facebook pages. Um, I have a Karen Tate author page as well as just a Karen Tate page. Uh, I hope you'll go there and like it. Uh, My uh, personal page is nearing 5,000 friends, and soon I won't be able to take any more, so I'm gradually transitioning over to the Karen Tate author page. Uh, And while you're there on Blog Talk, uh, while you're here on Blog Talk, I mean, I hope you'll hit the follow button uh, that you see on my show page and become one of the voices of the Sacred Feminine family. And by doing that, you're sure to get notices of guests uh, who come on the show each week, so you won't miss anything. Um, So, Uh, That is about it, I guess, um, for tonight. And I will close tonight's show with one of my favorite quotes. This one is from Monique Wittig, and she says, There was a time when you were not a slave. Remember that. You walked alone, full of laughter. You bathed bare-bellied. You say you have lost all recollection of it. Remember You say there were no words to describe this time. You say it does not exist. But remember, make an effort to remember. Or failing that, invent. Don't you just love it? Okay, uh, thank you so much for listening tonight, and uh, I hope you'll be back with me uh, next week. I'm actually going to have the show on Tuesday, the 19th, and uh, my guest will be Gianna Ciccelli, and uh, she is going to be giving a talk on the sociology of religion versus magic and witchcraft. Uh, She's also the speaker at the upcoming Joseph Campbell Roundtable at the Goddess Uh, Temple of Orange County uh, on May 23rd. So uh, if you're local, come uh, see Gianna in person and see her wonderful slideshow she's going to give along with the talk. Uh, But if you're not local, tune in next Tuesday and you'll hear our conversation. Thank you so much, dear listeners. You are gas in my tank. I appreciate all the emails I get from you and uh, comments and uh, ideas for guests. Uh, You keep me going, and you let me know that you're out there and you like the work that I'm doing, and uh, that means the world to me. So don't stop. (laughs) All right. Good night, and have a wonderful weekend. Happy spring.